All right. Uh, pardon me. Okay, let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, as we dive into your words today, and as I preach your word, I pray that you'll guide me and use me as your vessel, that whatever I speak may not be of me, but be of you. And all this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everyone. And happy Chinese New Year, yes. All right. So, today we'll be talking about um, afflictions. And so, what are afflictions? That was the first thing that came to my mind. So, I looked it up and it basically means a cause of pain or harm or the state of being in pain. Okay. So, when I was thinking about it, I happened to come across this quote and it, it left a really big impact on me. And the quote says this, Afflictions add to the saint's glory. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. The heavier the saint's cross is, the heavier will be their crown. And when I was thinking through this and I was thinking to myself, well, how are diamonds made then? Which led me to this. I did a long search about this, but bear with me. So how are diamonds made, right? A hundred miles deep in the earth, a layer separating a hospitable exterior from the molten core, known as the mantle, is where the diamonds were made Temperatures boiled above 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and pressure exceeded 725,000 pounds per square inch. And graphite is a naturally occurring form of crystalline carbon. It is a native element mineral found in metamorphic and in igneous rocks. Graphite is a mineral of extremes, is extremely soft, cleaves with very light pressure, and is a very low specific gravity. Okay, now, if you guys don't understand me, I understand because this is all science. Anyway, moving on. So this is basically what graphite is, all right? And what it says next is, the extreme heat and pressure combined actually modifies graphite, a crystalline carbon on the atomic level. This restructures graphite, graphite's molecular composition from a hexagonal sheet pattern into a triangular shape, resulting in diamond. So to cut it short, what, re what requires graphite to turn into diamond? There are two, two things, right? There's pressure and there's heat but not just any pressure or any heat, right? It says extreme heat and pressure. So to give an idea of how extreme it is, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius at sea level, which is where we are, all right? So 100 degrees Celsius, you know, that's hot enough to the point where if you touch it, your first reaction will be, ouch. And plywood. Have any of you, like, used plywood before? It's quite, it's quite tough, you know? It takes 7,000 psi of water, water, right? The water that we use to drink to cut through plywood. And imagine for graphite to turn to diamond, it's about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you convert that to about degrees Celsius, about 1,000 degrees Celsius. And 725,000 pounds of psi. So that's way more than what you need to boil your water or even to cut through wood. And I was thinking of this and I was thinking our lives as Christians, right? It's, you know, it's, uh, you know how God formed us from the ground, from dust? And at the end of the day, if you follow along with the quote of this, the heavier the saints crosses, the heavier will be their crown. Life as Christians, we often think that, you know, because we have God by our side, we won't be dealing with any problems. Life will be a smooth, a very potless road ahead of it for us. But little do we know, we are facing so much pressure, and sometimes we'll be under fire, if you get what I mean, right? So as I was thinking this, this led me to, to my next point, which is this verse, 
Second Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And this really, really touched me really deeply because a few, just a year ago, I was oblivious to how certain things are that serious in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you know. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect now compared to how I was last time, but there are a lot of things I'm working on. And the reason why I'm bringing this part up is to show you how my life has changed. So for that, allow me to bring you on a short timeline of my life. So first, as a toddler, see, growing up, I was surrounded by my family, of course, but there was one thing. My dad, he was, a, uh, he was an Adventist. He was from the Malacca Church. And um, he used to bring us there every Sabbath, as always. And, but on Sundays especially, we would go to my grandmother's house. Now, my grandmother was a Buddhist, all right? So she would go and she'd be like, Oi, Shenzhen, you want to So I'm like, okay. I have no idea what she said because I was a banana at that time. I couldn't speak Mandarin. So I was like, okay. So we would go to the altar, we would pray, and I was like, can he understand me? I don't speak Mandarin. So I was like, okay, uh, okay, I, I think he should understand me, all right. So that was me when I was younger. I was confused. Having a dad who was, who was Christian and having a grandma who was Buddhist, you know, you're just, I was just six. I was like, what should I do? When I go to school, what do I tell my friends? Am I Christian? Am I Buddhist? You know how they make you fill up the forms? Like, what is your religion? I'll be like, uh, I think I need to call my dad, okay. But anyway, moving on, we're now at adolescent, all right? So this is about roughly maybe 13 or 14 years of age. And this is normally where parents, if you have your kids, they're about to reach this age, just prepare yourself. And those who have already, your kids who have already passed this age, you know what I'm talking about is the rebellion stage. Okay? They have a mind of their own. And so when I was 13 or 14, I was already in high school. So in high school and government schools, we have this thing called Marintas Desa, okay? I'm sure we should all know. And if you translate that, it basically means cross-country. So Marintas Desa for us is not exactly crossing the country. It's more like cross-city because it was just five kilometers. It wasn't that far. But as kids, you know, we were like, phew, Marintas Desa, we've got to prove our point, man. We've got to be number one. So the thing about this Marintas Desa, right, the government decided to make, make it on a Saturday. They, had, they, they, they wanted to make it on Saturday because it was a day where everyone rested and they made it compulsory. And if you didn't attend, you needed to give a, a legit reason. So when I was an adolescent, right, uh, at that time, we stopped going to church and we were like, so for me, it was just, all right, it's on Saturday, but we hardly go to church. So I was like, you know what, let's just go, have fun, let's run, run with my friends, and enjoy ourselves. So that went on for a few years, all right? But I soon reached teenager, which was about 17, 16. I would say around this age was where everyone thinks that they know what is good for them. And I think parents can agree with me, right? Like your kids would be like, I'm 17, I know what, I know what I'm going to do. It's okay, pa, I got it. But... At this age was where things started happening. So at this age, right, I was starting to go back to church. I was 
thinking, I was like, why do we go to church on Saturday? Why not Sunday? You know, the typical questions that you would ask. So I started attending church, and that year, uh, when I was 17, I also got baptized for the first time. So I was really fresh. I was like burning. I was like, let's do this. And then came Marinta's Day, sir. So you see the problem here? During this stage, I was going without any complaint. I was 13 to 14, maybe maybe three years had gone by where I was just attending. No excuse. Marinta's Day, sir. Kevin, you coming? All right. All of a sudden, you tell your teacher and your school that you can't come because it's Saturday? They'd be like, what's going on? Are you trying to skip? So what do you tell them? You know, when, you're just, when you just get baptized, right, the first thing that you would tell people is like, why do you go to church on Saturday? You would just say, I, I'm not sure for anyone, but this is for me. I, w- I would say, it's the Sabbath. So what says Saturday is the Sabbath? You would be like, I'll go and ask my pastor. I'll come back to you. That's what I would say. So, you notice how there's this like this gray area here because you're transitioning and for years people are just used to you being like this and all of a sudden you change. But thankfully enough, um, with the help of a church pastor at the time, he wrote a letter and that was enough. But that was, like I said, only the beginning of what I was about to face because no longer teens. The reason why I put no longer teens was because 18, 19, and reached 20 is a T now. It's no more a teen. So when I reached no longer teens, uh, I was in salt. Okay, so in salt, we have a lot of classes, and we it's basically like Bible study, except you cram everything into four months with theory and practical as well. Okay, so theory and practical, you're set, you're good. And not only were you good. You will be surrounded by with a, you'll be surrounded by people who had the same goals and motivations as you. You know, they're all fired up. They really want to learn, so it's a good feeling, and you feel safe. You feel safe because it's your bubble. You don't have to worry about what other people think. You don't have to worry about what your friends think. You don't have to feel worried that you're waking up six in the morning to pray. You don't have to feel worried about finishing three books and submitting it by Friday. It's a norm. Your friends are all doing the same thing. If you were in a normal school, you're reading three books, they'll be like, why are you reading? We have exams. But when you're there, you're reading three books, they're like, have you finished reading yet? Are you done yet? Oh, you're done yet? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch up to you. So that's how it was during SALT. And then, of course, not everything was smooth sailing in SALT because there was canvassing. Boy, oh boy. Canvassing was, mm-mm. Because... You know, canvassing, I don't care how big and tough you are, I don't care how muscular you are, you're going to be afraid for the first time. You'll be so scared, you'll be praying like you've never prayed before. Because in canvassing, you never know whether the person who comes to you will give you a positive reaction or a negative reaction. It's like a, it's like a guessing game. Like That person might be nice on the outside, but you talk to him and he's like... You, and although, like, you see me doing this, you might think it's easy, but just this, it really hurts your feelings. You're just like, I haven't talked. Okay. There was one time I remember I was going up to this lady, I was like, because my Mandarin is improving, I was like, ni hao. You would expect how. This lady said, pu hao. I was like, um, 
Ni hao again. So I didn't know what to say, so I was confused. So that's how scared you can be doing canvassing, right? And, but the thing about canvassing is that it teaches you how to, to cling to prayer and to know that God is with you all the time. You might think that you're alone walking here and there, especially for me, because I, I used to have a really bad social anxiety. I couldn't even order food when I was younger. My parents would be like, son, your sister is ordering food for you. Mind you that my sister is older in my defense. So anyway, so I had really bad social anxiety. I would, we have to canvas through restaurants and, and offices. You know, just going in, you feel these stairs among you, like how I'm feeling now. So yeah, you feel these stairs and you're like, oh. Until your friend says, let's do it. Oh, okay, let's go. Then you go. So anyway, canvassing taught me how to depend on God fully. It taught me the importance of prayer. It told me that you have friends with you. And most importantly, you have God with you, right? And now, I'd like to bring us to the present. Present where, I'm not sure most of you might know this, but I am currently facing issues in my university. All right? So, after, you know, you finish salt, it's like a, it's like a second baptism. You, you feel even more pumped up. You know, you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to stand firm. And then I entered university. So me being a first-year student in the first semester, I asked uh, one of our, our fellow members, I asked my friend Natasha. I was like, because she, she was there earlier before me. So I asked her, did you have any like, exams on Saturday? She was like, no. I was like, okay, that's good. It's good for me. No exams on Saturday. I don't need to see the, the teacher. Then came our midterms. First paper, marketing, Saturday. Wow. It was one paper. And mind you, I had five uh, subjects in that semester. So first paper, marketing, Saturday. Went to the next class, maths, Saturday. Third paper, I think it was, um, yes, information system, Saturday. I was like, wow. It's like, I thought life would be smooth. <laughs> but man, first year, first semester, three Sabbath papers. I was like, okay. I think God is trying to tell me something. So I was like, it's okay. I, I was like, I'm going to talk to the lecturers, see what they think. So I talked to them. Marketing was okay. It was very supportive. Uh, maths was supportive. Information was supportive. So I was like, okay. It can't be any more problems, right? Mm-mm. So you know what happened? The big boss, finals. So in my university, finals goes a little something like this. You have your final paper, and if you, for some reason, couldn't attend for your final paper, you had to sit for a supplementary paper. So supplementary paper is divided into two. The first one being, you would uh, sit for the exam as a first attempt. First attempt meaning that you could get any grade that you... That you that you put your work into. So say, for example, you did really well in your supplementary paper, and you deserve a B. You get a B. Or you deserve an A, you get an A. However, there's another supplementary paper that is, you go there, you do the supplementary paper, and the highest mark you could get was a C. That meaning to say that they will only let you pass. So in my mind, I was like, you know what? I've been quite consistent. I've been praying. The lecturer seemed to be okay with it. So I was like, okay, I'll write in a letter, send it to the exam unit, and I'll see how it goes. 
So I wrote in the letter, sent it in, and I skipped the exam. I was like, I was like telling my friends, I was like, you got an exam this Saturday? They're like, yeah, have you studied? Nah, I don't need to study. Mine is supplementary. So they were like, you wait. So I was like, okay. So second semester began. And when the second semester began, I didn't get the supplementary. And when I didn't get the supplementary, that only meant one thing. When you don't get a supplementary, you fail. And when you fail, you have to resit the subject. Note that I said the subject and not the exam. So in my case, it was accounting. And I hate numbers. Okay? The fact that I had to resit for the subject meant that my coursework, my midterms, gone. And my coursework was pretty high. Out of a 50, I got 42. So I only needed 8 marks to pass. Yet, I failed. So to me, I was like, I'm not going to resit the subject again just because I didn't go and I have a legit reason. I was like, why should I sit for the subject again? It didn't make any sense. So I appealed and I asked them, I said, is there any way that I could reset the exam and not the subject? And they said, no, you have to reset the subject. So I was pissed. I mean, genuinely, for someone who comes up from Malacca to sack every single week, I say I'm quite consistent, yet I did not get what I wanted. And at this point, I was, I was sending in letters to the president, to the vice president, and me and Natasha were just sending in letters just to get our voice heard. And until one day, I'm not sure many, I'm sure pretty, a lot of you know, Joseph. Joseph asked me, he said, no, Joseph didn't ask me, sorry. He sent a video to, to the WhatsApp group chat. It was about Pavel Goya. I'm sure many of you should know. He talked about how he was, before he became a pastor, he was in Romania. And he was working. And his boss basically disagreed. He said that, you either come to work on Sabbath or we will bring this to court and I'll send you to jail. So, clearly mine, if you compare it to his, mine is here. Mine is just failing a subject. I'm not going to jail. I'm not losing my freedom. Yet, Pavel Goya was here. He was losing his freedom. So, in the video, Pavel Goya talked about how he went to his dad and he said, what do I do? And so, after listening, the father asked him one question. What are you praying for? If you think about it, whenever we are faced with problems, right, we tend to pray for ourselves. And what I mean by ourselves, we pray like, in my case, I prayed, Father in heaven, I hope that I don't have to take the paper again. I hope that the exam will allow me to. I hope this, I hope that. It always starts with I. Me, 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 me. Self, 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 self. And Pavel Goya then mentioned saying that when you pray, pray instead of for yourself, pray for God. So instead of saying that I hope that the, the exam won't fall on the Sabbath, pray that if it falls on the Sabbath, it's fine. I just hope that whatever happens in the way I respond to it and how I react to it, it will be for God's glory. And that 
if in case it does happen, or in case if it doesn't happen, it's okay. I know you'll take care of me. You, I know you'll take care of me. Notice how Pava Goya says that in his prayer, he says that he knows God will take care of him even before the thing actually happens. So, in a sense, he's putting his full faith into God. No, without knowing the end result of what will happen, he's saying that, God, I know you will do this for me. I believe you. I will leave it to you. So, this reminds me of this verse. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And the following verse, Matthew 21 and 22. And all things, whatever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. You know, Matthew 6, 33, that's a scripture song that we often sing. But how often do we actually believe those words? Do we sing them as a, t- a song that we really enjoy? Or do we sing them and ponder on the thought on how much that verse means to us? Because many a times we can say that, you know, I'm a Christian, I put my full faith in God. But when you're faced with problems and issues, sometimes, honestly, you tend to forget. You tend to rely on, on, your, on your own power. So after watching that video, I changed my mindset. I started praying. Praying and praying and praying. I mean, I prayed so much, it almost reminded me of canvassing. And then I realized that maybe there's a reason why God is making me go through this. Maybe there's a reason why the, the university is not allowing me to, you know, to take the supplementary exam. Because if you think about it, the university isn't losing anything. They're not losing their money. They're not losing their reputation. All I'm asking is just for a paper for a supplementary exam. It seemed right with me. But as time went on and I didn't get it, I started to let go of myself. I started wondering, you know what? It's fine. It's okay. So I carried on to my second semester and this time I was quite shocked because as I went to my second semester and I was faced with another Sabbath exam, surprise, surprise, um, I told my lecturer, I said, sure. Uh, I can't go for this, 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 this. And she was like, her response shocked me, genuinely. She said this, you're that boy. I'm like, what boy? I've never met you in my life. In my heart, of course, and not in front of her. She said that, you're that boy. You're the one that has been causing an issue for MMU. I'm like, what issue? You're the boy with the religious issue that you can't come on Sabbath. I'm like, yeah, that's me. I'm like, okay. I'm popular. Popular for the right reasons. So that's good. And then she continued on saying, did you know that a lot of lecturers were supporting you? I was like, I'm even more popular. Okay. So I was like, okay, maybe there is a reason. So I feel comforted, you know. I'm like, maybe I might not get it in the first sem. Maybe I might not get it in the second sem. But through all this, my actions, my presence is working on the people to the fact that people who have never heard about Seventh-day Adventists, they're now taking an interest. They're now wondering, why must this boy go to church on the Sabbath? Does this boy really go to church on Sabbath every single week to KL to worship? It brings up a question. It's a good question. So, 
Now that I'm done talking about myself, let's go to the Bible, shall we? We will look at different instances and examples and how each of them handled their own situation. So, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, we see Daniel, of course. Let me read this verse for you. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So, nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof, they might stand before the king. So, I'm sure many of us have read Daniel before, right? Okay, so, if you think about it, a king, mind you, at that time, it was like direct monarchy, so whatever the king says, you do. If you don't do, you're in trouble. Okay, wow, it's flickering a lot. Anyway, so, the king said, <clears throat> he appointed them his daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. Wine at that time is not something that everyone gets to drink. It's quite a privilege. And meat is also, I would say, very hard to get, especially if it's the king's meat from his own cattle. So Daniel at that time, he said that he will purpose his heart. He will stand firm, you know, on his belief. He wouldn't want to defile himself. So he asked the eunuch, and if, what do you think would happen if, let's say, um, say we have a king now. The king says, um, on Sunday, no one should be driving their car. Everyone should be exercising, using public transport. We want to reduce the usage of cars. All of a sudden, this guy goes up and tells the, the king, I want to use my car. Honestly, I think the king would be so pissed, he'd be like, who are you to go against me? What are you and what am I? I'm the king, right? He has every right to say what he wants and every right to do what he wants to do. But yet, Daniel, he challenged. He said that, give us pulse, which is vegetables at that time, and water. And I guarantee you, I'll be fatter and fairer in flesh. Let's say we put ourselves in their shoes. Water, I can understand. You might be fairer in flesh. But fatter in flesh with vegetables? If I was that one of the people that was with Daniel at that time, I would be like, that man's crazy. Vegetables? Are you going to be fatter than me? I'm eating meat? Are you kidding me? So, Daniel challenged, and of course, not only was Daniel blessed with, not only was Daniel and his friends blessed with um, knowledge that was 10 times better than everyone around there, but Daniel specifically, he was also blessed with one more. He was blessed with understanding of all visions and dreams. So we see in the first situation with Daniel, he was faced with a situation where he was forced by an authority to, you know, he was forced by an order to do something, yet he stood firm. And because he stood firm, God blessed him abundantly, right? He was blessed with uh, Pharaoh and Fratter in flesh, uh, 10 times smarter than everyone. And he was also blessed additionally with understanding all visions and dreams. Now, let's move on to the second situation in chapter 3, all right? Verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, when a king sets this up, do you think he sets it up for no reason? 
Do you guys think that statues are there just to admire? Of course not. He was a king. He wants to be admired by all people. So what did he say in the next few verses? That at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshippeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Again, if you compare this to my situation, my situation is nothing. Alright? This one, if you do not follow what the king said, into the fire you go. And I like to think that Nebuchadnezzar was very prepared. You think about this. Cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. If Nebuchadnezzar was so sure that no one was going to oppose him, how ready was he to have a burning, fiery furnace that could fit people? Normally, you would have a furnace to cook things up. But this man, he had a burning, fiery furnace prepared for people who are going to oppose him. And that is just scary to me. You just oppose someone into the fire, you go. I mean, honestly, if I was there, I would be shaking my pants like that, like just like that, you know. But what did Daniel's friends say? 16 and 18. 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Okay, I want you to think of it from this perspective. If you were not a Christian, right, and you read this sentence, it doesn't make any sense. And what I mean by it doesn't make any sense, you see, if they were not delivered by their God, they still will not serve their Nebuchadnezzar's gods, nor worship the golden image without a setup. See, if I wasn't a Christian, I would think this man is crazy. You know why? If your God is not saving you, why would you not serve? If I wasn't Christian, I would be thinking, okay, if, if this God's not going to serve me, I'm going to change. I'm going to do everything in my power to stay alive for myself. You know, because that's how I'm going to think if I wasn't Christian. But the amazing thing about Daniel's friends, even if they were not going to be saved, they would still not worship. This is a very clear example that their faith is not just on themselves. They are not focusing on anything but God. The fact that they said this is a sign that they really, really have full faith and full trust in God. Because to say this is not easy. If you are not saved, you're going to be thrown into the fire. Yet they knew if they didn't worship, they were going to be thrown into the fire regardless, yet they would not go back on their word. That right there is true faith. And now we come to the third example, Job. So you see, Job was a very, very special man. As it says in chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So, if you think about it, if you are a child and your parents tell you, son, 
Atai, you're doing so well in school. Or you're doing so well in your in your what sports are popular nowadays? Uh, football or whatever sport. You know, as a child, you'd be whew, my parents are praising me. I feel happy. Yet Job, he was described as perfect, upright, and one that feared God and should evil in the Bible. You know how much good you have to be doing to be de- to not only be described one, not two, not three, but four. Perfect, upright, one that fear God and shoot evil. This man must be doing something so right that I don't think he's done anything wrong so far. All right? And not only that, verse 2 and 3 goes on to say that um, he has seven sons, three daughters, and his substance was a lot. Substance was basically cattle, all right? His, his possessions. And this man was the greatest of all men of the East. Job was such a good and perfect man. He had seven sons and three daughters. That's so many. All right? Nowadays, we have two and we are struggling. And I'm not even a parent yet. You, know, you guys have, I mean, like our, our family, you know, we have two. We're like, oh, the amount of diapers I have to buy. Whew. But this man had seven sons and three daughters. So much cattle. And I said four. I forgot, there's one more. The man was the greatest of all men in the East. In all men in the East, Usain Bolt has the credit of being the fastest man in the world. But Job has a credit from the Bible being the greatest man in the East, perfect and upright. You get my point. Job was an excellent guy. He was amazing. But we move to verse 5. And we see something. And it was so, when the days of the feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Not only was a Job was a perfect man, he was a perfect husband and father as well. Look at this. It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He offered offerings for his sons. How often do you find someone doing that? We are already struggling so much with ourselves. This man, he's willing to take the responsibility of his entire family. That's dedication right there. <clears throat> now, if you were a man like Job, would you be at peace with yourself? Like, you would be calm, right? You would be like, you know, if there's anything... I don't think anything bad is going to happen. I mean, I've dedicated my life. I am faithful to God. You know, you think nothing wrong might happen. But of course, you know, some things are too good to be true when, they, when it's going too well. So, then came Satan from verses 6 to 12. If you look in your Bibles, Job chapter 1, verse 6, verse 6 to 12. Satan challenges God. He's saying that the only reason why Job fears God is because God is protecting him, as seen in verse 10 and 11. Has not thou made an hitch about him and about his house? And about all that he hath on every side, thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. So basically what Satan is trying to say here is that God, the only reason why you have Job is because you've been protecting him. You've not allowed anything to come between you and him. But I bet you, if I remove that barrier of protection you have against Job, 
he will turn 180 against you. So, of course, sorry. So, of course, God said, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. To Satan, of course. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So, what happened? Job lost his cattle. He lost his camel. He lost his servants. And he lost all his children. And if you read in the order that he lost it, it wasn't like, okay, today he lost it. Next week, he lost this. Next month, he lost that. Mm -mm. It was a scenario where his servants, Satan specifically led one servant to alive just to tell Job. It went like this. Job, imagine Job minding his own business. The first servant came. Sir, you've lost all your cattle. While he was processing this information, another one came. Sir, you lost your camel. Processing that information again. Sir, you lost all your servants. <sighs> While processing that, you lost all your children. You know, as parents, and I'm not a parent, so I ask this to parents. If you lost even one of your child, wouldn't you be devastated? That child of yours that you've put so much care, and I'm assuming that his children are all grown up, okay? Seven sons and three daughters, I'm assuming they're all grown up, they're all well. If you lose one, you'll be devastated, of course. You'll be so sad, I'm pretty sure it takes weeks or maybe even months to recover. But Job lost all his children in one day. And not just one child, all ten of his children, gone. Yet, yet, if you look in verse 21, Job said this, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How often are we to blame God when something bad happens to us? So often. It doesn't even have to be something this major. You drive your car, you bang someone, you're like, why? Why am I in this? God, why, why did you do this to me? These little things, maybe you, you lost your touch-and-go card, you lost your wallet. You, you, tend to, you tend to think that, oh, why is this happening to me? Do we praise God in any sense? But this man, he lost everything. He lost everything that he could ever have. Yet, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. How many of us are able to say that? I know I personally, I don't think I would be able to. Even if I lost one person that was dear to me, it's so hard to say this. And the following chapter carries on the same pattern. Satan goes on to meet God, challenges God again. God allows Job to undergo it, and Satan proceeds to do it. But this time, Job was on the receiving end directly. And what I mean by directly is, the previous one, when Satan um, attacked Job, it was all connected to Job, but it wasn't, it wasn't him. It was all around him. His cattle, his servants, and his children. So it wasn't him. But the second time around, Satan went directly for Job. And this time, what did Satan do? 
he gave Job boils from the sole of his feet to the top of his crown. I'm sure many of us have pimples, right? You know how as a kid you have that itchy feeling, you want to pop out that pimple and you see they explode and you're like, wow, them swung. But imagine a boil bigger than that. And this time, everywhere, not missing a single part of your body from the sole of your feet. Notice how he said the sole of your feet. It didn't start from the top. It started from the sole. So when you're walking, it hurts. It hurts a lot. This is just the back of a woman's skin. Uh, back of, yeah, the back of, the woman, or back of a woman's back. So this is what I got from Google, right? A boil is a common painful infection of a hair follicle and the surrounding skin. It begins as a red lump, then fills with pus as white blood cells rush in to fight the infection. However, good home care can often clear up a single boil. A single boil. Also known as skin abscess. So, good home care can often clear up a single boil. It didn't say that it can clear up. It said it can often Often meaning to say that there is a possibility that it won't even clear it up at all. And good home care, it has to be good. You can't just have any home care, you know. Yet Job was covered from head to toe. And you know how he cleared it off? He scraped it himself. You can read it in the Bible. He scraped everything himself. And just one pimple for us, it's so painful, you know, when you press it the blood starts coming out and you're like, you rub it off and then the water is like, ah, it hurts. My forehead hurts or my nose hurts or my cheek hurts. This man had everything entire on his body and he didn't like, you know, one by one like, eh, eh. This man scraped it all off. You know how painful is that? I don't even know. I, I don't, I can't even imagine. But what can we take from all this Examples that I've given in the Bible. There is a connection between all these three. The connection is, when you're faced with something, first of all, stand firm. Number two, always have full faith in God. And number three, praise God. And the reason why I say this is because you might be thinking, why am I receiving this? I'm doing good deeds. I'm keeping the Sabbath holy. Everything, I'm trying to do my best to, to do right. Yet, I'm receiving all of this. However, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, it tells us something about it. Oh, not this one, sorry. Matthew chapter 5, 11 to 12. It says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were you before you. So if there's anything we can take from this, if you are ever facing problems, you're ever facing trials, you're ever facing persecutions, or maybe just a, even a little thing, know that there is a reason as to why this is happening. And that reason is, when you're doing so much for the good Lord, and Satan sees this, he isn't happy, of course, 
So what does he do? He persecutes you in hopes that you might falter, your faith might be shaken, but all in all, you know that if he persecutes you, you must be doing something right. So instead of feeling discouraged, know that you're blessed. And it's weird. If you think about it from a non-Adventist like, point of view, you're getting all these bad things, yet you're happy? Come on. What's wrong with you? Like a normal person would be like, I'm getting bad things. I'm like, I must be cursed. But, of course for us, it's the opposite. So, before I close, I'd like to leave with a paragraph from Ellen White. And I'll read it for you. Let the repenting sinner fix his eyes upon the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1 verse 29, and by beholding he becomes changed. His fear is turned to joy, his doubts to hope. Gratitude springs up, the stony heart is broken. A tide of love sweeps into the soul. Christ is in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. When we see Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, working to save the lost, slighted, scorned, derided, driven from city to city till his mission was accomplished, when we behold him in Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood and on the cross dying in agony, when we see this, self will no longer clamor to be recognized. Looking unto Jesus, we shall be ashamed of our coldness, our lethargy, our self-seeking. We shall be willing to be anything or nothing so that we may do hard service for the Master. We shall rejoice to bear the cross after Jesus to endure trial, shame, or persecution for His sake. Desire of Ages, 439.3. Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us that though we may be facing troubles or trials or persecution, we know that there is a reason behind all of this. And maybe, maybe it's to show other people who you are, show them that you exist, show them that you are a real God. But I pray that as we face all these troubles, I pray that we will be able to stand firm, stay faithful, and always cling unto you for power. Because we know that if we do it on our own, we will utterly fail. So I pray that as we have learned, I pray that we will to apply it and cling unto you more than ever. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.